Hi, listeners. Today's episode includes topics of racism and racial violence. While we approach these topics with great care, we wanted to advise our listeners who experience trauma related to this topic ahead of the episode. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Are you on fire? Do you feel on fire? I'm on fire. I'm ablaze. Mm, No. Great. I was trying to like fake it. I thought if I just like put it out there, that kind of energy that it would just get returned to me. <laughs> this is not an episode of The Secret. <laughs> Damn it. Oh, man, I got to take my uh, vision board down and everything. Been clipping <sighs> things out of magazines for weeks. Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't either. <laughs> I had no desire. But it was an Oprah thing, right? I think it was one of her book club picks, and that's how it became a big thing. But it was out for a minute before that, you know? Yeah. I don't know anything about it. I I... From what I hear about it, it's like, you know, manifest things into your life. Right. Like if you, yeah, exactly. I think you that's know. exactly what it is. I think it's nice to think positive, but I think, you know, uh, a cork board and a uh, a bunch of push pins, um, a life plan does not make. <laughs> <laughs> it makes for a good, like, montage for a Lifetime movie, though. Well, and maybe it's just the inspiration you need to do the things. Yeah. You know, I... I'm all about whatever people need to make positive change in their life. Give it a try. Give it a try. I mean, not whatever. Let me take that back. Don't kill somebody. (laughs) Don't start doing really, really addictive drugs or anything. Yeah, yeah. Within reason. But, you know, if it's not hurting anybody, including yourself, you know. Give it a go. Give it a go. Go stick some some newspaper clippings to the wall and and call it an inspiration board. Whatever. (laughs) Hey. Did you? I feel like that was a really big thing when I was in high school. Like, I think, I think around the time that I was in high school, everybody had those binders, which I wonder if kids even have binders anymore. But everybody oh, yeah. had binders with like the clear plastic, and so everybody like made a photo montage in their binders of like their friends and probably like cutouts of Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Justin Taylor Thomas. J- Justin uh-huh. Taylor Thomas. Is that, is that, that is, Jacob uh, Taylor Thomas? Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Jonathan Taylor Thomas. I knew it was a J name. I was close. You know, J-T-T. it's funny. The minute it came out of my mouth, I was like, oop, something about Ooh. this is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I just barreled on ahead. You are correct. Yeah, everyone did that. I didn't do that because I was like, you know what? Who am I kidding? I would do um, something like that. I would go to the, the media center slash, you know, the library. Yes. Did you guys call it the that computer- too? We called it a computer lab. Okay. Yeah, essentially the same thing. I don't think we had enough computers in our media center to call it a computer lab. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we went in there and we would print out like things from AOL, like our favorite musicians. So I would go in the media center and print out pictures of like Shirley Manson and Gwen Stefani and Sailor Moon and all of these things that any, you know, straight Honestly, uh, sometimes I think we actually had the same life. <laughs> right? And I would print them out, put them in my binder in like the clear plastic sleeve, or I just have them in the pocket inside to like mm-hmm. kind of inspire myself or show like my to one friend. To do that geometry. <laughs> to show your one friend. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, those days. 
Okay, before we get into the material for this episode, last week we talked about Shannon Doherty's commercial. Yes, I saw you had this on the list, and I'm wondering if you, if I'm wondering. Okay, so I looked up the commercial, and it is a treat for the senses. So I highly recommend if you just Google <laughs> Shannon Doherty co- college commercial, it's like, or go to YouTube, it'll yeah, it's come like right up. College Connection or something. <laughs> yeah, and what's but what's even better is when you first search Shannon Doherty college. What you get is a TV movie type thing that she was in called Satan's School for Girls. (laughs) Please tell me it's from the 2000s. (laughs) I want to say it's actually like 99 or something like that. I just wanted Uh, her to be a teacher and not a student. (laughs) Oh, 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 oh. Well, she could be. Oh, wait. Satan's School for Girls. Oh, it's a 1973 made-for-television horror film. Wow. Produced by Aaron Spelling. Of course she was in it. Oh, oh wow. We have, to, we have to find that somehow. Hold, hold on. On Wikipedia, it also says, The film has been named as one of the most memorable television movies of the 1970s. Huh? Wow. Oh, and also... I'm confused. Is she in this? She's not listed in the main cast. Maybe she's just the, like, you know, maybe that's how maybe it she... was one of her first appearances kind of thing. Maybe she's uncredited. Maybe. I mean, either way, I'm 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 intrigued. <laughs> I'm doing a little bit more uh digging right now. Yeah. Oh, okay. She was in the two thousand version. Oh, there's so yeah, it. so two thousand. Oh, okay. So they redid it. Yes. And she's atten- she's one of the students at Fallbridge College. Mm, that to reach. Yeah. Well, it's 20 years ago. Who am I kidding? Ooh, she enrolls to find out her the story of her sister who is believed to have completed suicide. Once she is enrolled, she discovers a satanic cult of witches who call themselves the Five who want Beth, who is Shannon Doherty, to join the cult. This is very, like... I feel like we need to watch this one, yeah. one time, one week. We could probably find... I mean, if I found it on YouTube, maybe the whole thing's on YouTube. Honestly, I always find those old made-for-TV movies on YouTube. So, welcome to Ripped from the Headlines. Hey, here we are. Here we are. And this week, Matt is the episode recapper. That is correct. I am so excited. This episode... I watched late last night and was also doing the research for the crime while I watched it. So I will confess, my memory of it is a little foggy. So I'm glad that you're recapping it for me. Oh, no worries. No worries. I did this in my traditional way where I watch it once first and then and then go back through. You're truly dedicated <laughs> to your craft that way. I try. I, you know, I can't always. The past few episodes, I don't think I did that. I don't think I could stomach it. <laughs> Do you think it takes more or less time? Because I feel like the way I do it is I'm watching and pausing constantly. And I feel like that takes, like, I it ends up taking, like, two and a half hours to watch the show doing it that way. Yeah, I would imagine it takes about the same amount of time because I have to go through it twice. But yeah. it, my enjoyment level is higher, so that's why I do it that way. <laughs> okay, great. Well, <laughs> here we go. Okay, I don't know what the true crime is at all um, after watching the episode. Okay. And I was very careful when I was looking up guest cast members to not scroll too far oh. down on that damn page because sometimes it just sneaks up on you. Oh my God. <laughs> a bird. I, I almost just had a heart attack. A bird landed on my window, like on the screen. Like it landed on the screen. It just gave me a heart attack because it was like a foot away. Like talons on the screen? Yes. Oh. It was scary. Birds are, I don't like birds. Have you seen 
Birdemic? No. <laughs> no. Have you heard what? of Birdemic? No. Wait, oh that sounds God. like somebody, like, it sounds like the Sharknado version of Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds or something. Oh, okay. Sharknado is the Birdemic. <laughs> okay. Birdemic is the, the OG here. Oh, um, oh, Birdemic came before Sharknado? Yes, absolutely. Wow. Birdemic is, is I would say, a high <laughs> inspiration point for Sharknado. Wow. It was okay. made on a really low budget. It is one of the worst movies I think ever made. And the graphics, I will not kid you, when they fu- there's a lot wrong with it. There's a lot wrong with it. Oh, a really God. good uh, recap of it is if you look up John Tron, he's a YouTuber. If you look up John Tron's review of Birdemic, if you like that type of humor... If you're uh-huh. at all nerdy, you will. Um, he does a really good review of it, and that's what made me end up watching it because my brother showed me that uh, review. Wow. It is ridiculous. The graphics of the birds are literally like Windows 95 screensaver. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really, okay. really good. So I want to go you, watch this now. Maybe it'll, it'll help relieve you of your fear of birds. <laughs> number two, <laughs> item number two on this is there's a Birdemic 2. Oh, that's scary to me because sometimes they try to recreate the magic and they ruin it even worse. Okay. Now, number number one, number two, number three, I don't remember what number I'm on. <laughs> There's a movie called Trolls. No, oh, Troll. Yeah. Troll 2. Troll. Yeah. But you've seen, have you seen Troll 2? I've never seen Troll or Troll 2, but I know about Troll 2. Okay, Troll 2 is really worth it. It's worth your time. It is so, so, so bad. And there's a main character in there who literally is like <laughs> Tina Fey. You know when on 30, I know you didn't watch a lot of 30 Rock, uh-huh. but you know when Tina Fey, like there's moments where they cut back to her history of like a failing actor. Briefly. I, I'm like having vaguely. A, yeah, vaguely. There you go. It's that's very much what this character in the movie is. And it kind of looks like Tina Fey trying to do a bad character. It's incredible. You have to watch it. I've seen like the iconic scene of the like they're eating her. Oh, my God. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> OK, it's like that. Birdemic is in that world. The Birdemic, The Room and Troll 2, I feel like are the, tr- the trinity. I feel like we need to have The Room. Oh, with have... Jodie Foster. No, no, no. Not ro- that's Panic Room. Um, oh. The Room, not to be confused with Panic Room, which I'm not a big fan of, or Room, which is an amazing movie. I can't go on to a tangent about The Room right now because it's too important. <laughs> it wow. needs its own segment because it's, I, you probably have heard of it because they made a movie based on the uh, cult classicdom of The Room called The Disaster Artist a few years ago with James Franco. Huh. But in any event, it's a big deal. And the main reason I can't go into it right now is because one of my closest friends named Ryan is a listener of the show. Shout out to Ryan. Big fan. And go check out Ryan's new uh, record that just dropped called Margins. But he's like the biggest r- The Room fan with me. And if- Are people going to be able to find him literally just by saying Ryan and his oh yes let, let me let me actually plug it because I really want to plug it because it talks a lot okay. about a lot of really important um a lot of really important things it's punk music it's it's unlike anything I've heard of because I'm not like a huge punk music fan but I really like his music a lot and it talks about a lot of the things that are really happening around social injustice today a lot about the marginalized communities the the 
song margins in particular talks like specifically about that and about the LGBTQ community and it's just nice. a great, great um album. So his his project is called Margins. Um his his music is put out under the name Scary Hours. And so you can find mm. him on Scary Hours NJ, I believe, on Instagram. So shout out to Ryan. I'll do a better plug for you in the future, I promise. But the reason I can't talk about the room right now is because Ryan is really like the the room expert with me. And if he hears me brush over it, I'll I'll never be able to show my face again in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> um wow. Okay. A lot, so a lot there. I'm feeling like we should have a, a terrible movie night and watch The Room and Bird Demic and Troll Two. Without a doubt. That's like a dream come true. That's that's how we watched The Room. We did a terrible movie night and uh, that's oh how we watched God. it. <laughs> What were the other ones? <laughs> I think we started doing them. The idea was like a terrible movie marathon, and then it eventually became like we can only do one one movie at a time. <laughs> and I think yeah. we ended up watching Sharknado one week. We watched Birdemic one week, The Room, and then I think we just started to keep watching The Room. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> you've you've seen Mystery Science Theater three thousand? Yes, right? yes. Not enough. Not as much as I would have liked. Uh, I think. Yes. Yeah, I think it it came out probably when I was a little young, which means you were even younger. And so I I never like really got into it. But the concept of like comedians shit talking terrible movies is such a brilliant concept. And I'm like jealous that I didn't think of it first. It really is. It's like the the pre-podcast podcast. It really was. It you really know? was. Wow. Revelations uh, here, right here. All right. <laughs> you well, heard it here okay. first. <laughs> Uh, so I don't know why we were talking about because this. Because we were talking about, um, oh, we were talking about bird the room. Demic. Bird de- Oh, because a bird flew into your window. Oh, a bird flew into <laughs> <laughs> Totally derailed course, the whole thing. Of course, that's why. You know what? It's a lot of good things. Oh, boy. Okay. All right. Go so ahead. So <laughs> getting into the episode, this is uh, season one, episode 13 of the show. It's called A Death in the Family. And... I would say there is a weird overlap in this episode for the guest stars or for the cast in general. Really? Yeah. You're never... It's so random. Okay. It's a overlap with the movie Dangerous Minds. Shut up. Yeah. There are four Ooh. characters in Dangerous Minds, four actors in Dangerous Minds that appear in... Okay, let me rephrase that. Three actors in Dangerous Minds that appear in this episode and... When I looked at the cast of Dangerous Minds, there's also a fourth character that's in Law and Order in, that we've wow. seen. Yeah. Now, okay, go ahead. There's one actor that I want to talk about, but I'll wait till you get to the scene. Okay, because there's only three actors that I'm going to point out. So if I get to the third one and I haven't mentioned them, feel free to bust in. Okay. <laughs> if I, I haven't done it already. <laughs> um, okay, so you made a prediction last week. And I wrote oh, it down to keep track. I'm going to keep track of this to make sure we're see if it's fulfilled your prediction was that one third of the next 15 episodes will open with beat cops and that there will be at least one dog discovery within. yes so in, within yes right. one dog discovery in the next 15 episodes yes so right away we have ta- ticked one of those boxes because we open up to two dogs discovering a beat cop <laughs> <laughs> No, it's t- it's two, <laughs> it's two cops beat cop in the dogs. Car. It's yeah. actually dogs who are the beat cops. So yeah. all all of it has been fulfilled. There are Weimaraners <laughs> in trench coats like on Sesame Street. Oh my god. 
no, it's but it's Logan and Greavy, but it's it's still you know, it's two cops. They're two detectives. It's it's the I same know. thing, and it and it was shot from behind, like yes. in the back seat, which is very like the beat cop footage thing. yeah and until like they started talking a little bit more i didn't even know it was them so i didn't know it was them either okay, okay good so I'm glad it we wasn't are opening me. up i'm taking the box this is one this counts thank you thank you for giving me credit for that 100 percent. i'm really curious to see how it all pans out so tbd i said that too many times today already <laughs> so uh it's logan and Greavy. they're responding to a call and they are having the most like 90s conversation ever where one of them goes the computer age it's like the computer age am i right computers i can't do it i remember Um, (laughs) when when downton abbey was getting into its later seasons i I, this was around the time of when there were like blogs were the really big thing and there were like blogs reviewing tv shows Mm -hmm. and i just remember there was this blog that i used to read that recapped downton abbey episodes and toward the later seasons, they just were so incensed because, like, 90% of the dialogue was, like, times are a-changing. Like, well, we better get used to the modern times. This is the modern oh, world we're living in. Like, Yeah. Yeah. It was like, okay, we get it. Yeah. We, <laughs> we know, like, we're in a period of, of time change. Okay. Yeah. Great. <laughs> and when they're having this, like... The computer age story, it's irrelevant to the rest of the story, makes no sense. And it just reminded me of like the advent of the internet. And uh, when there was this time we were at dinner, it was with my family and like one of us just, oh, my, my older sister mentioned like, oh, isn't it weird? Do you ever think about like, who was the first person to think of like random things? For instance, like we were eating fish and she's like, who was the first person to think of like put lemon on fish? Or like, and then even furthermore, who was the first person to think like, this is something that's probably edible. Let's try it out. You know, we we're just yeah. like having conversation. And my stepmom goes, well, why don't you uh, surf the web when we get home and figure it out? <laughs> and I swear, like, we're awful children because all we did was just make fun of surf the web for the yeah. rest of the meal. It was like, <laughs> I think my sister was like, I think I'll take a cruise down the information superhighway when I get home and uh, yeah. <laughs> check out the net. <laughs> Anyway, um, so they're having that kind of thing, putting us right in the 90s, letting us know. And uh, they're looking for someone named Brutus Walker, who they describe as a homicidal homicidal maniac. Mm -hmm. And he's out early. And so they're going to his girlfriend's place, maybe his ex-girlfriend. Who knows? They're hoping that she'll talk um, if he's not already there. And if not, they'll just, they sort of insinuate that they are going to mention to her that she is rumored to be doing sex work out of her apartment. And, you know, hopefully that'll compel also, her to talk. I feel like if there were just two of you en route towards somebody that you're considering a quote homicidal maniac, would you be having like a really casual conversation about? computers i would be so anxious right and they're like uh you know let's see what happens he's really dangerous we're just gonna go in here like very Uh, catching up yeah especially because when they get there there's already cops on the scene so it's not even like a yeah so they uh they park the car and casually as ever (laughs) as you said but then we hear like this shrieking scream behind them a slam and the (laughs) camera pans back and there's a body of a man just on the police car yeah like it was great, great uh, graphics, they felt like, I think. Yes. The great, great they're, effect. <laughs> this episode and the last one, they're getting into their, like, graphic imagery vibe. They really are. And the sound effect. 
of the scream yes. was like, you know, someone pressed a button that was like free scream, <laughs> scream, scream dot MP, MP3. Exactly. Free screams dot MP3 dot com. It's like that laugh, <laughs> that laugh that you hear in every movie that ends with a oh. little kid that trails on a little too long. Yeah. Okay. And then, so there were like, you know, this changes the whole vibe and we pan up to like the window of, uh, <laughs> to the uh, wall, <laughs> to the sweat dripping down there. Whoop. Oop, what am I doing? So they uh, they look up and they see this, you know, this lit window and a few people looking down and a cop says, oh, it came from the, you know, the, vic- this, the person that you're here to see's window, which I think might be hard to tell, but whatever. There's only 12 windows on the, on the wall. So <laughs> great coincidence, but uh, they run up and they send the other two cops up to the roof and they're like, all right, you guys are the roof. We'll, we'll head in. And Grievy realizes when he gets to the apartment that the crying woman inside has just seen like a man die. So he very delicately asks her, is this where your friend took a flyer? Right. Again. (laughs) Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, A very different um, experience that we would have seen if he had like how we see him go to the the uh, grieving white women. Right, and how they exactly. how they're like sort of delicately treated with kid gloves in their apartments, and they're sort yes. of wearing berets and like brooches that cost five hundred dollars. And here we have this poor woman in a bathrobe with her hair looking a mess, and they're like, "Did your friend take a flyer out of here?" Yeah. And even through the whole thing, they're sort of rude to her. She's sitting crying. Yeah, like she like she did it. So right. she says, "You know, Brutus grabbed him and tossed him out, and then they hear gunshots from the roof." And, you know, Grievy heads up. Logan says, don't even think about leaving to her. Again, treating her like she is somehow responsible for any of this. Yes. And they get to the roof and it's a pretty harrowing scene. Um, Rennick, one of the two cops that we saw downstairs, is lying on the, uh, on the rooftop. And he's got a bloody wound on his neck. And his partner, Sandoval, um, she's like paralyzed by the scene. And Logan is like, they're screaming to her to call call it in. And sh- she's so paralyzed that Logan has to run to her and like unzip her jacket and use the walkie to call it in. Why doesn't he have a walkie? Well, I think because they were just sort of, if they probably left it in the car, because I think they're oh. detectives rather than like cops. I don't really know, though, to be honest. Okay. I'm just making making crap up, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> Why am I defending Logan? <laughs> <laughs> um, so he calls it in and she's standing there looking shocked. Uh, and we go to the opening credits. So I had some time to build a connects Ferris wheel and motorize <laughs> it. <laughs> and we're back afterwards. Um, did you recognize the officer? The female officer? I didn't. Who is okay. she? Okay. So this is our first guest star and a very exciting one for me. Okay. Uh, she has played, so Officer Nikki Sandoval, the uh, female officer on the roof we just saw, paralyzed in fear or shock, whatever. Uh, she is played by Wendy McKenna. And Wendy McKenna played, most famously, Sister Mary Robert in Sister Act. Oh, my God. Do you recognize her now that you see her? Because it wasn't very long after, and she has, like, the same hairstyle in many of the scenes with the big bangs. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, I totally recognize her yeah. now. Yeah, and she was most recently, I looked up uh, her, like, IMDb, and she was most recently in uh, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the Mr. Rogers movie with Tom Hanks that just came out last year. So she's still huh, working. I didn't, even, I didn't know there was a uh, Mr. Rogers movie. Yeah, it got nominated for all these awards. I haven't seen it, but oh, heard interesting. good things. Yeah. Oh. So good for you. It's still out there doing your thing. 
So now we have uh, Grievy having a conversation with Cragen, and they're eventually joined by Logan, and they're all talking about a paper called The Telegram and how 13 cops have been shot or killed this year. It's not clear which one, but they're sort of like expecting the news to come down that Rennick didn't make it because of all of this. And when they do, uh, you know, they go over to his partner, Sandoval, in the car, and she's sitting there like catatonic. Back at the station, Grievy is with a character that we've seen a few times this season. I haven't introduced him yet, but I'm seeing him all the time, and I looked it up, and he's in it a lot. So this is as good a time as any. It's uh, Detective Tony Tony Profaci. He's played by John Fiore, and he's a secondary character, but we're going to see him like over the next nine seasons, about 53 episodes. Okay. So far, we've seen him in like three or four episodes. He's sort of the only other male character in the station that ever speaks. Mm-hmm. And here's one of his shining moments so far. And if, another good way to describe him, because every time we watch it, Davey's like, is that Logan? What happened to his hair? And I'm like, no, no, no. That's that's the knockoff, Logan. <laughs> he auditioned for Logan, didn't get it, and they were like, you could do this instead. That's my, that's my imagination. <laughs> um, he mentions to Grievy that he wishes that someone would find Walker's body, that's the suspect, and, and you know save the taxpayers the cost of a trial. And Grievy asks him if he came across an an unarmed, ready-to-confess Brutus Walker in an alley, what would he do? And he says, I'd shoot him in the face. Mm -hmm. A statement that gets no reaction from Grievy whatsoever, at this point, at least. So (sighs) that's, and it was like that. Yeah. So he goes over to Logan, and he eventually brings it up and says, do you agree with that sentiment? And he... (laughs) Logan makes a face that I guess we're supposed to like gleam like an ashamed sort of like confirmation from, I think. I I don't know. But he he like skirts the issue and mentions like, uh, you know, Sandoval is acting pretty cold for having just lost a partner. And Grievy tells him to, you know, chill, cool it, and Mm -hmm. uh, let's go talk to her. So they go talk to her on the roof, which I think is like her favorite place because every time she's in the episode, she's on the roof. The whole the whole season, it's or whole episode. She's just on the roof. <laughs> she's she lives there. She lives on the roof. Yeah. It's un uh, unsure why pigeons like fly in in the middle of her scenes to say hi, and she's like, no, 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 I'm shooting. <laughs> so <laughs> Sandoval is standing up on the roof, and she's like, she talks all the time as though she's got like a secret, and um, it's like broken up like sentences, like got uh, a secret. <laughs> And she's kind of dancing back and forth, a little gothy. Um, no, she's she's sort of like a like an old timey movie character that would like wear a trench coat and like sit back to back with another man at a diner, you know. Oh and be yeah, like, yeah. Hey, so uh, I heard the rain Spain's falling plainly in the plane. Is that what you imagine old timey dialogue is like? <laughs> you know, like rhymey, sort of like oh, yeah. No, no, no. Um, Logan and her clearly do not get along. Very explosive no. scenes between them. He asks her like a pretty simple question about the case with a little bit of a tone, and she snaps and she's like, "You have any more any awards? I have." Yeah. And he's like, "You're a wimp, basically." And they have like this little back and forth on the roof, and she just glares at him as as it kind of like Grievy is like, "Hey, take it easy, take it easy." Yeah. If this was a romantic comedy, they'd end up together in the end. <laughs> so in the next scene, they're talking to who, like, I think he's a waste management associate. And oh yeah, that guy. Yeah, he talks like he's in The Godfather. And um, when I looked up the actor, he actually was in The Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> so 
there it is. He says he didn't see anything, and Logan, like, shouts at him that a cop got killed. And he's like, uh, cool, I heard he was a Capricorn too, but it doesn't really make any difference to me because uh, I'm still getting paid. And right. we have this other, like, magical moment that you mentioned. I forgot what you called it last time, but, like, Grievy just happens upon a garbage can that just happens to have this pristine Letterman jacket just happening to sit just on the top with not even a scrap of trash on top of it. Oh, Deus Ex Machina? Yes, that thing. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow, just happened upon it while we're having this conversation. I understand they were here to look for evidence, but he just lifts the garbage can up and Right, here but it the is. fact that it's like the first thing. Right, in pristine condition in the trash in New York City. The next day. The next day. Okay, so the name on the Letterman jacket says it belongs to someone named Red, and they obviously have the name of the high school, if it's like any other jacket. And so they go to check it out the next scene, and they see this young guy on the court. He's chilling out, maxing, relaxing all cool, shooting some b-ball outside of the school. Goodbye. (laughs) When a couple of detectives who are up to no good. (laughs) You're really proud of yourself for this one. Started asking questions in this neighborhood. I, that's all I got. So they evidently, you know, it's a point in the scene because it's they're not even the people. They just direct him somewhere else. Um, right. And where they direct him to is the set of the 1985 martial arts comedy, <laughs> The Last Dragon. Yes. <laughs> there is a group of street performers breakdancing, and they wanted to really show us, like, this is New York City. Busking happens on the street, and you are going to see exactly... We're going to really plant you in the middle of the city. And they got this, like, joyous kind of scene of performers breakdancing very well. And there's an uncomfortable group of white people around them <laughs> who are, like, yes. awkwardly clapping out of tune and smiling. <laughs> like high school choir. <laughs> yes. And so uh, the, te- the, te- the detectives approach Red, who's in this like little posse, and pull him aside and they say, you know, this is your jacket. And he's like, no, no, I gave that to my ex-girlfriend, Ravina. He says that she was part of the act previously, but she kept missing rehearsals, so he kicked her out. And so in the next scene, Ravina, of course, is going to be performing, and I am telling you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, not exactly. The next scene, they go visit Ravina at the school, and she is also a guest star. Oh, uh, let's see. Where is she from? I like saw her and I was like, you look, you sound very familiar, but she also has a very affected character. So I wasn't yeah, sure. Her acting was horrendous. Yeah, it wasn't spectacular. So Ravina is played by Karina Oroyave, and she was in Dangerous Minds as Josie, one of the students. Uh, she was Carla in Orange is the New Black season seven, which I did not see that season yet because it's the last season. And she was in 24 for a few seasons, which I didn't watch, but I know it's very popular. So maybe you guys did out there. I imagine her inspiration for Dangerous Minds came from this character. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure she could have walked from this set to the set of Dangerous Minds. Probably. The only thing that changes, I think, is the hairstyle. Because here it's very like Paula Abdul, Selena. Uh, Like, yeah. But in Dangerous Minds, it's all bangs. All bangs. So (laughs) that movie was, should have just been called Bangs. (laughs) <laughs> I, i'm gonna i'm gonna reshoot it and just call it bangs and, bangs. and re-release it and see if i can get some some cash out of it i'm gonna Great. get rachel's that sounds like a, the word i bangs. mean that sounds like a moneymaker so. <laughs> anyway so she's uh walking down the hallway she's flanked by grievy 
and uh, Logan in the middle of our high school hallway, which is, you know, not weird looking at all. I'm sure to everybody, very discreet. The whole scene is very strange because they, they walk down the hallway. She's very calm. They're having a sort of a peaceful conversation about the jacket and her heartbreak weird. And Grievy, like, I didn't even see it happen, but I guess he grazes her arm or puts his hand on her arm. And she yeah. screams and shrieks and she's like, don't touch me. And she pulls a handgun out of her purse. Yes. Like out of the nowhere. And she says she found it behind the apartments and she took it so no one could ever hurt her again. It's a very strange scene. Everyone's kind of watching. It's very out of place. She puts it down. Everyone claps in the hallway. And that we was the never thing. hear about this again. Why did this happen? <laughs> I was going to ask you if in my like f- sort of haze of remembering this, if this scene ever got brought back up, but it didn't, right? No. Like, there was just this moment where no. she drew a gun on police officers in the middle of the school hallway, and, and then her character watched. is never heard from again. Yes, and they all watch, and Grievy does a good, I guess, good job of like de-escalating the unusually escalated situation. Right. Um, as she puts the gun down and like just puts her head in her hands, everyone just kind of goes, "Oh, phew!" and claps like they just watched like a, a scene on like Montel. Like it's no, like no, no, nothing. No. I don't think they went like, "Oh, phew!" When I watched it, I distinctly remember the students being like, "Ah!" Like as oh yeah, it was they were like, hoping that she was going to shoot them. It was like a it was like a weird sense of relief, and then a clap, yes. and then we yeah. again they mention her like again. Just briefly, and we never hear about it again. It's pointless. It feels to me like this was the going to be like the beginning scene of a different episode, <laughs> and the credits would start. <laughs> I was kind of one. Yeah, that could could have easily been. I was thinking it was probably like maybe there was more stuff connecting to her story that they ended up having to edit out for the episode, and so then. To us, it makes no sense. But yeah. to them, when they made it, it made sense. Yeah, this either supported the theory that they just shoot a bunch of, like, um, victim-y sort of or sensational scenes to just put in front of episodes and then base it, <laughs> base yes. them on that later. Or, like, I was hoping this had something to do with the true crime. Like, maybe? No. No. Okay. Very strange. If they don't follow this up in a later episode, it was a complete waste of time. And I'm so sorry for Rav- the actress who played Ravina because... They really Rebecca, Rebecca Black do here. <laughs> so, so they um they pick up the weapon. It's a thirty two, whatever that means. You know the size, I guess, ballistics, all that <laughs> stuff. And uh, they they do the ballistics on it, and they find out that it's uh, the same gun that shot Rennick. And they both feel like something isn't adding up. Besides the obvious, like it was on a fifty year old girl. And they sort of like figure out like why are her prints the only one that are on this weapon? Um, all of this sounds like it happened so quick. Why would the gun have been wiped clean? She didn't do it. She wouldn't have even known how. And then they find the gun shop that it was originally sold from. And this all got very confusing for me until the very end. But I guess it seems like the gun shop said had like had a robbery mm. and eight guns were sold, stolen. And this was one of them. And it's the only one that was never like accounted for later on got it i think that's what they were getting at but it's honestly very confusing (laughs) the main focus of the scene is the fact that the owner of the gun shop is a former police officer who is in a wheelchair and they have like this moment of like oh were you wounded on the job and he was he was but by like slipping on ice and i think it's supposed to be a moment to like put things into perspective like oh you know not every injury that happens on the job is violent i think but it's just a weird miss 
a lot yeah. of the messaging that I'm thinking they were trying to make were huge misses in this episode, which isn't a huge which is surprise. shocking for Law and Order. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then they have that really gross conversation outside where they're like, basically, after meeting the 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 former police officer in the wheelchair, they're like, "Would you rather be shot and killed or be like put in a wheelchair?" And I'm like, honestly, is like, that the conversation we're having? Yeah, I agree. They move on and they revisit Cassie, who is Brutus's girlfriend or ex-girlfriend, and this time they're at her job. And she says to them that, you want me to help you, but you're not going to keep me safe. And you want me to put myself in mortal danger. So I'll pass on that. So they're like, go, you know, she's like, go ask someone who's closer to him. So they go ask his sister, who's played by like a, a statue of a woman, barely moves her mouth when she speaks. This is in the furniture store, right? Yeah, I don't even know what where what kind of place this is. It's like a weird all, shop. Like a thrift store kind of thing. I don't know what it was. But she is hands down one of the worst actors they've had on this show so far. Without a doubt. Like they're like Like I would rather have the the actresses who were doing the weird theater accents speaking mm-hmm. to the balconies. Like she was really, really bad. She was <laughs> Is that an excerpt from Troll 2? What was that? <laughs> that was the uh, portal opened up and some some uh, trapped souls from the underworld were sh- <laughs> screaming out. I apologize. <laughs> she she talks as though her mouth is made of like um, stone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she doesn't move the entire scene. She could have been a statue. No. She could have been she a gargoyle. Maybe we hallucinated all of it. Uh, it was a fever dream. So they ask her, uh, you know, what about your brother? And she's like, he's the best. And that's essentially the point of the scene is there's another guy in the scene who I'm unclear who he is, but he's related to the to them in some way. And he says, listen, don't listen to her. He Brutus was here the other day as soon as he got out. He was making a bunch of calls and then he, he she let him have her car, but she'll never tell you. So they're like, OK, great. Next scene, they run into Sandoval, and she and Logan get into it again. He says, I've never liked you, which is never explained either. And then she says, you know, is it because I'm a woman? And if I'm not sobbing, you think it doesn't hurt? I'm just as much of a cop as you, and I'm just as tough as you are. Not well delivered, but it's a a valid point. But she also reveals that, you know, his partner, Grievy, also lost someone years ago, and, you know... He is surprised by this, and she kind of, like, escapes while he's like, what happened? Why didn't you never tell me? Oh, we were friends. <laughs> and it just explains why, like, Grievy's, like, mopey and somber this whole episode. You know, he lost someone, too, so he empathizes. And then we have lawyers, uh, lawyers, Walker's lawyer in the next scene saying to, if they give him immunity, if they give Walker immunity, he's got some interesting information. He's not guilty, and he wants to make a deal. But... The cops say uh, they don't make deals with cop killers. And um, upon him exiting, he says, if he hadn't been a cop, then what? And Sergeant Cragen supposes that the guy could be right. And Mm -hmm. when he mentions this, Grievy looks like he was just told that he ate human flesh. Like, (laughs) how dare, what? Oh my God. How could you possibly even suggest such a thing? But it's his boss, so he has to consider it. (laughs) So too bad. So next they are seen harassing an innocent black man on the street who was previously incarcerated, but is again not involved in any way. Nope. And they eventually find Walker who turns around with both hands up and Logan and Grievy are holding their weapons out and it's this high intense scene. They finally found their guy and he turns around with his hands in the air and he says, you want me to run so you can shoot me and be a hero? Disappointed? And the look on Grievy's face as he says, like, not yet. 
is like bone chilling. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a it's a lot. It's a lot. Yep. So uh Walker is another guest star. He is Jerome Preston Bates, and he plays Brutus Walker in this episode, the suspect so far. And he is also in Oz as Officer Travis Smith, and he is in uh, Shaft, the 2000 version, as an officer, and he's in many, 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 many more episodes of Law & Order and Law & Order SVU to come (laughs) as different characters. Okay. I think he eventually finds his own character when he's on SVU, though. My favorite thing is when there's, like, the same actor playing, like, 18 different roles on a TV show over a decade and a half. Yeah. So uh, Stone and Robinette are now in the next scene consulting with Grendel. I mean, D.A. Schiff. (laughs) 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 And he says they they can't just let the guy walk, but they have to be discreet. Do you mean Gollum? (laughs) No, I mean Grendel (laughs) from, like, Beowulf. Grendel's supposed to... But Grendel was supposed to be a beautiful, I thought. I thought Grendel and Grendel's mother were like beasts in the water, and Beowulf was beautiful. Maybe I'm thinking of... Okay. I could be wrong. I'm confusing Grendel from The Wheel of Time. Is there a Grendel in The Wheel of Time? There is. Oh, we haven't gotten there yet. Okay. I know. We haven't. One of my favorite characters, I'm just kidding. Oh, okay. Looking forward to it. Anyway, so they are talking to D.A. Schiff, who is not beautiful. No offense, Schiff. But he is... He's a troll inside of a cave. And so they ask him, uh, you know, what are we supposed to do? And he says, as usual, let the guy have it. Don't let him walk, but be as discreet as possible. We don't want attention, like every episode. So they don't have anything to really go on. Robinette consults with a cop who strongly, strongly believes that they have enough to go after Walker. But Robinette is hung up on the gun being, like, from that shop, unaccounted for, and... She says to charge Walker in this lifetime because, quote, a lifetime can be pretty short if you're a cop. And he says to her, you think a badge makes one life more valuable than another? And she says, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. Gross. Moments like this do not make me beam with pride (laughs) to be an American. I'll, I'll just say that. Yeah. So Stone goes to see Walker's ex cellmate who, okay. So he's the one who stole eight guns from the shop in the in that case, which is how Walker knew about the guns they're supposing. And this scene, I'm I'm convinced that this actor was just someone who just couldn't be controlled and just did whatever he wanted to do, and they just had to go with it eventually, mm-hmm. because this scene, it, he he thinks he's performing Silence of the Lambs. Yes, <laughs> he's got this like Nick Nolte, Gary Busey serial killer hair. He's delivering most of its lines with no response from the other character. He's just saying them rapid fire. They all require some sort of, <laughs> they all elicit like a response, but yes. no response. So he's like, Stone asks him like, okay, about the gun. And he says, can you spell gun? And he goes, yeah, D-E-A-L. Yeah. And then there's like a long pause, like a weird pause. And then he goes, maybe we should trade seats. I hear yours is getting a little hot. <laughs> just, just like that. And no response again. And he's like, a surprise you haven't gotten that guy. I would have gotten like yesterday. Yeah. And then finally Stone is like, okay, I'm done. I put enough quarters into this Dick Tracy machine. So uh, <laughs> what, what's going on? Like, what, what do you know what's going on? And he's like, I'll tell you anything you want. I'll t- whatever you want me to say, I'll say if you cut me a deal and get me out of here. And thank God, Stone is like, this is a waste of my time. I'm not, I'm not working with, I'm not, uh, what's the word? I'm not negotiating with terrorists here. I'm out of here. Yeah. And he is, I just think that I wish that was always probably the case of how that kind of situation goes. 
Yeah. So they do a little more digging on their own since they're getting no help from anybody. And they discover that Officer Rennick was on the scene where the gun went missing from, um, the original crime scene. And Stone bets that he took it. And he says that the reason is because a lot of old school cops, um, he says, would sometimes keep an untraceable drop piece, quote unquote, to plant on someone they shot who ends up being unarmed. Kind of like that episode we watched like three episodes ago. Sure. Just like that. Um, weird that we're hearing about it now now and not then. Yeah. But Interesting. Yeah. And interesting to hear about it at all. <laughs> so they go to his widow who says that she knew everything about him and that's not his gun. And they sort of insinuate that the belongings in their home are beyond his salary and price range. Suspicious. And she Mm -hmm. says he always took the maximum over time, which I guess is supposed to imply something like suspect, but it more seems like she's insinuating he's like cheating on her. It's it's weird. No, I think she's mean like trying to explain how they're affording such nice things because police get fuck tons of overtime money. Oh, okay. I was like, because she like says it in a way like she's confirming something for them almost gotcha you know and then at the station the cops are unwilling to tell robinette much of anything um they're all like closed-lipped and offended when he asks anything including sandoval who he runs into who like explodes at him in the hallway and she's like just talk to my lawyer (laughs) and i don't love the way they depict a woman going through a tough time on this show Yeah, because her whole point is to say that she's just as tough as any man. And then they completely break her down and make her an emotional sobbing mess. Yes. So back with Stone, they're going over Rennick's finances and they find out he's bought a new car recently. So they go to the dealership and the salesman says that Rennick's like pretty much a regular there. He'd come in with the missus, a foxy blonde, hell of a (laughs) looker for a widow. What does that mean? Hell of a looker for a widow, because if he came in with her alive, she's not a widow yet. So what is it? What does a a, apart from like that doesn't make any sense or or that's rude. But um, what does a widow who's not a widow yet supposed to look like? (laughs) An excellent question. Is that a riddle? (laughs) (laughs) What is exactly (laughs) the doctor is a woman. So they (laughs) the um, doctor was the mother. (laughs) They find out that the the woman is a person named Louisa Birkin. She's a model that Rennick was seeing on the side who didn't know he was married and thought he was an undercover agent. What a treat of a man this guy was. Yeah. So when they meet her, she's definitely, I don't think you've seen this, but she's definitely styled as though she's watched the Brenda Dixon 80s lifestyle video, Welcome to My Home. Oh, I have watched that because you told me to, oh. and you made me watch part of it, I think. Okay. Because I like the when she sits down on the bicycle, there's like the duck (laughs) quacking noise. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Thank you, Devin Green, for that. So that's how she looks. And she's she reveals that, okay, once she figures out she's been sort of duped by this guy, because she seems like she was in love with him, she reveals that she often had to hold money, envelopes of money for him. And when they track back all the dates when this happened, because she somehow kept those dates for some reason. Um, <laughs> Dear diary, today James gave me another envelope of money. Money. None <laughs> of my business. <laughs> um, and so they they track back the dates and they look back at all the cases he was on. And he was clearly stealing and pocketing money, drugs, possibly firearms from these big busts. And then they were getting reported as like missing. 
And so Stone asks Sandoval privately at one point to tell the truth if she's innocent because she's going to go down for something she didn't have anything to do with, probably. But she's very tight-lipped. Meanwhile, Walker's attorney just shows up and says that he uh, he knows that Rennick was a dirty cop who killed a drug dealer. And if they give him a deal, Walker will say who. Stone intimidates the hell out of him because he's mad because he apparently went over his head. And he's like, don't you ever talk to my boss <laughs> and uh the guy just kind of scurries away and they realize like okay it's not gonna be too hard it's literally our job to question people and we are literally um investigators and lawmakers and all of this so we'll figure out who he who he killed yeah which they do pretty instantaneously they're sur- talking to the surviving mother of a gentleman named ricky um he is the quote-unquote drug dealer in question and she reveals that the voice that she originally heard threatening Ricky for short waiting um, them on drugs was the same voice as the male officer who showed up later, who is Rennick. Mm. And so they go back to the jailhouse and they sort of bait Walker into thinking he might get a deal. And he tells them that he got to Cassie's place and saw her with the other man who we've all forgotten about by now. The original like man we saw lying dead on a police car. <laughs> Hello. Right. Um, so that he just went there and he walked in and, and the guy got nervous and sort of tripped out the window. Sure. <laughs> As you do. As you do. That happens to me every time I get nervous. I'm so lucky that most of the windows have screens these days because <laughs> forget it. So uh, he tells them that they're like, yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever. We're just interested in the dead cop. We're not interested about the guy you killed. Nice. So he tells them that he um, he's never going to tell them who uh who the drug dealer is like unless they give him a deal and he said and he's like uh we know it's ricky so whatever and they're like what yeah. the hell are you here for then and they play him a 911 call transcript for, or not transcript they play him the 911 call from the night ricky was shot and it's his own voice it's walker's voice and he's very calm and they say uh it was clear that like rennick paid you to make this call so um we're good we don't need anything else and they leave, and he's all upset. And I kind of wonder, like, they never mention getting this 911 tape. Like, we have to go see them go to every little play- dead end, but we don't see them get actual evidence. <laughs> it's right. kind of weird. <laughs> Finally, uh, they're on the roof with Sandoval after having this evidence. I cannot hear Sandoval without thinking Tom Sandoval from Me neither. Fan Cup Rules. But I feel like I never heard that word, that last name in my life ever until Vanderpump Rules, and I see it yeah. everywhere now. <laughs> <laughs> so... He or they're on the roof with Sandoval and her lawyer because that's Tom where Sandoval she lives. and yeah, Tom, they're at Tom Tom. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're at her house on the roof. <laughs> and uh, Rennick has made a deal with Walker to let him go on drug charges if he, oh no, sorry. Uh, she is basically like, okay, what do you, what do you guys want? And they're like, Here's here's what it is. We know what happened, so they lay it out for her. And they say that we know that Rennick made a deal with Walker to let him go on drug charges if he made this false 911 call from Ricky's apartment, which he agreed to do. And so he goes in, he kills Ricky, he leaves, Walker makes the call, they respond to the respond first to the crime scene, and then he gets to write the report on the murder he just committed. Right. So she knows it's true. She reveals that she caught him, she caught onto him being a shady cop a year ago doing illegal things, stealing money. And he even offered to like involve her, which she didn't want to be a part of because, you know, being a cop is her dream. That's her character. And so she 
decided to secretly start recording him. And she's been carrying around a little tape recorder in her jacket and recording him. And he didn't know about it. But on the night of his death, when she still had the recorder going, she says that uh, he was really on to her. And I got very confused about the end of this episode. So I'm really curious what your take on it is. Um, yeah. The recordings, reve- they played some of the recordings and they reveal that, and she corroborates this as well, like tearfully with tissues everywhere and says that <laughs> Walker was well off the roof by the time any shooting happened. Like he had already gone and that Rennick grabbed her gun from her. He said he grabbed her piece and then he was eventually behind her. She couldn't see him, but then he was behind her with his, his gun drawn. And then they say that she quote realized she was going to be the victim of an accidental shooting. So she shot him and ran end quote, which I don't understand because I don't see how is she going to be? Are they insinuating that Rennick was going to kill her or that he was going to accidentally shoot her? Cause they couldn't see, like, I don't really see what that, I, I don't mm. understand that at all. And she didn't run. She stood there paralyzed in fear. So I don't really get what they're entire. I thought, they were insinuating that he caught on to her catching on to him and he was going to kill her and use the drop gun and like say that, you know, yeah, she was, she was about by, to be by Walker who escaped, yeah. you know? Yeah. But that I don't know. They kind of like, be. I don't know. So, and so they're asking for just justifiable homicide for her. We don't really see any of the court case in this episode. It's a different format a little bit. And, uh, they figure if they get justifiable homicide, justifiable homicide, she will lose her job. Um, she'll get no time, though. And the episode ends with Stone asking for leniency in Sandoval's case. He says that a cop violated their bond of loyalty to their partner, and it wasn't Sandoval. It was Rennick. And that is where the episode ends. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. So that's it. I don't know how that's going to compare to the uh, the real case, because I don't even really know how this concluded. <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. very confused. <laughs> like... She obviously shot him in self-defense, but I thought it was because he was onto her and going to shoot her, but like they made it seem like he was going to accidentally shoot her. I don't really get it. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. But I will happily tell you about the real crime. Oh, I'm so interested. So this episode was based on the Larry Davis case, which I'm I'm guessing you probably don't know cuz I hadn't heard of it either. Uh, But it was a a pretty well-known case at the time um, of the kind of like mid to late 80s, early 90s. Okay. I definitely don't know it by the name, so. Yeah. And also Larry Davis is a very common name, so. Yeah, it's basically Larry David. (laughs) Yeah. So sources for my research for this, Wikipedia and Murderpedia, uh, a couple articles from the New York Times, uh, articles on The Source and The Guardian, as well as I found some of the briefs filed with the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, on behalf of Larry David. So that is where I got my info from. Okay. Larry Davis was born in 1966. You know, they uh, I didn't find what specific area he was born in, but he seems to have been raised in the, the Bronx, Manhattan area. Okay. So, New York. And <laughs> he was known in his community to be an aspiring rapper. He was known to be musically talented. He played multiple instruments. And he also, like, operated some small music studios in Manhattan and the Bronx and also did repairs and modifications on motorcycles. So his community kind of saw him as, like, entrepreneurial. Yeah, like kind of like a 
not jack of all trades, but you know, someone who was yeah. involved. Yeah. Um, he did also deal drugs, but mm-hmm. according to the folks in his neighborhood, he stopped dealing drugs when the woman he was expecting his first child with miscarried, and he learned that she had used or been using crack cocaine, which he blamed for the miscarriage. Oh, that's and, really sad. Um, he did have one daughter born in July of 1986, though. And one article actually says he had two children, but I, um, most of the articles that I found only name one child. So I, I, I'm a little unclear on that. Okay. So, yes, he was dealing drugs, but also somebody who, it appears, was trying to kind of make a, a life for himself through music and that kind of stuff. He did have a previous uh, 1984 robbery conviction and a probation violation. And I wanted to share something about probation violations, and maybe I'll just do it here. Okay. So. When you are on probation, there are, like, two types of violations for probation. There are substantive violations, which are ones where you commit another crime during the period of your probation. But there are also what are called technical violations. And those are the most common form of parole parole or probation violation because they're really easy to violate because they're things like being late or missing an appointment with your probation officer or being out after curfew or not being able to find a job or um, being in contact with anybody else who is on parole. And so there are a lot of those technical violations that are are really difficult for an individual to control because often you are limited in the employment you can find depending on the severity of previous convictions. And so the places that will hire people with previous serious convictions or felony convictions often are places where there would be other people who are on parole. And so when you're in, when you're like geographically limited um, in neighborhoods where there are higher rates of crime, it's it can be really, really challenging for people to not have technical violations of their parole because there are so many circumstances outside of their control that really constrain their their options, right? Like, if you're out after a curfew, that means you can't have a job where you're like working the graveyard shift or, you know, your your bus gets home late and you violate your curfew that way. Like there, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of those kind of technical violations that happen. Yeah. And I also, on top of that, like the type of parole violations that I am familiar with are uh-huh. incredibly easy, incredibly, yeah. incredibly easy for the average person. Totally. And on top of that, like you said depending on the nature of the crime, the previous crimes that the person might be convicted of or um, like being charged with, they can't get jobs that are easy to correct navigate yeah. with. And then one of like a very common thing is it's very hard for people to get in touch with their parole officer often. And yeah. a lot of times it's because the parole officers are incredibly overworked and have way too many cases and it's not necessarily their fault fault that they can't follow up with everybody, but it's easy to miss meetings with your parole officer. It's easy to miss a court date. It's easy for a court date to get changed without you even knowing it and then find out that you missed it because you never got contacted and then you're suddenly like you're doing everything you can. So if you're one of those people that wants to comply with your parole from what I've heard um, from somebody is you have to be like five steps ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to be like way, way, way more on top of it just to make sure that you're not getting forgotten even when you're Correct. trying. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah it's totally. It's terrible. 
one of my favorite like courses I ever took in my undergrad was a a uh, course on the criminal justice system with a, a sociologist named uh, Dr. Nikki Jones, and she now teaches at UC Berkeley. Mm. And I just remember, I, it was such an incredible class, and I remember her talking about how when people are on probation or parole, they are so heavily surveilled by by police and all of that sort of stuff. And so, uh, and if you commit another crime, that's considered a violation of your probation. And there are, and she like posed this question to the class, like, if you were under 24-7 surveillance, how many laws do you think you would be breaking in a day? And the, it's entirely like all i think all of us do things like that all the time we don't stop at a stop sign we're sure. speeding we're you know and if somebody were watching us we would be prosecuted for it or or arrested for it or whatever and so when there's these really high levels of surveillance and conditions that uh, are really difficult to meet depending on like your neighborhood and and being able to stay out of contact with other people on parole or probation it becomes like nearly impossible to not have technical violations of of parole or probation so anyway that's my little soapbox (laughs) (laughs) very necessary thank you um okay so the information that we get on this case is a little suspect and it's kind of like the reminds me of the tawana brawley case where it's like there's there's very differing opinions and perspectives on how this all went down okay which you can kind of you know get some of that from the law and order episode So supposedly Davis was being sought as a suspect in seven different murders, which were the execution-style killing of four drug dealers in a Bronx apartment, another in uh, during a drug robbery in Manhattan, and two others. So supposedly he was being sought as a suspect in multiple drug-related killings. Wow, okay. Yeah. He knew he was being sought out by police, so he avoided his own apartment. He was kind of staying with relatives and friends. And on the ne- on the evening of November 19th, 1986, supposedly acting on a tip, 27 New York police officers attempted to raid a six-story apartment building where Davis's sisters lived. Um, in her apartment at the time of the raid was Larry Davis, along with his girlfriend, um, Larry Davis's sister, whose name I believe is, Re- yes, Regina, um, her husband, and four children, her four children, along with Larry's children who were, and again, this is the one where it mentioned multiple children, but he was asleep, or hit one of his kids at least, was in a bedroom at the back of the apartment. So there was like seven or eight people in this apartment mm-hmm. at the time. The police claim that the raid was just an attempt to question Davis because at the time, no charges had been brought against him and he had not been specifically named as a suspect in any crime and they didn't have any warrant for the raid, which Mm. is kind of like the biggest red flag to me. Huge. Yeah. So according to Regina, I'm sorry, Regina Lewis, who is uh, Davis's sister, she answered the door when she heard a knock and nine police officers entered her apartment wearing bulletproof vests with their weapons drawn. And she says she heard an officer order the children along with her and her husband to get out of the apartment and said, quote, come out, Larry, you don't have a chance. We've got you surrounded. So thinking that the police were about to start firing, she shouted, or, uh, um, yeah, she shouted, don't shoot, my babies are here. And this is where accounts, like, really start to differ, because shots start to be fired, 
But who fired first, like the opinion of who fired first drastically differs. Of course. So from, and this, it it just, yeah, anyway. So Larry Davis does fire a 16-gauge sawed-off shotgun and a uh, 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol. And six of the officers in the living room were injured, two of them pretty seriously, and they retur- returned fire on Davis as they were retreating out of the living room. And in that kind of hubbub, Davis managed to escape, uh, which is kind of a uh, wow. another thing that is really shocking because they hadn't like adequately. So this is another thing that sort of, in my perspective, there is people. There are people who say that you know they didn't have a warrant. What was going on here? Also, with this sort of, like, what were what were the NYPD doing? They didn't adequately, like, have the streets blocked off to control this situation. And so some people are, like, question, like, he shouldn't, if they were sending 27 police officers right. to supposedly just question this person, like, why were they blocking off all of these streets? And they didn't really do it correctly or adequately. And so it just sort of, like, leaves question marks as to whether the NYPD were doing things properly, like, or whether this was part of some other kind of nefarious uh, operation. So yeah, I'll, go, it, I'll go into that a little bit. It questions, more. like, I guess, their motives behind the whole yeah. thing. Because it, yeah. it does seem, like, both overkill and, at the same time, like, super sloppy. It, exact, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Thank you. <laughs> so... Police were able to collect some weapons from the site when they returned, and they found, and later ballistics would connect those weapons to the drug dealer killings. But Davis later is on camera stating that, quote, the police gave me those guns. And in an interview with Davis's sister, Regina, she said she uh, tried not to have him in the apartment, but she ended up letting him there because he told her, and this is another quote, if I'm caught in the street, the police are going to shoot me, but I'm going to shoot them first. He's, that's the quote that she says he said. Correct. Oh. So there's a, a manhunt for him at this point, and there are police stakeouts at bridges and tunnels, and a, an actual like nationwide alarm was issued. And I, I borrow that phrase from one of the articles. I'm not sure what a, a nationwide alarm is. Yeah, which does that <laughs> mean it's just like on a lot of news stations? I guess, I guess, <laughs> and yeah. people felt alarmed? Yeah. <laughs> so as the manhunt kind of spread, because they were not sure where he was, they raided friends and families, associates of Davis's in Chicago, in Albany, in Newark, and other any other cities in kind of like the northwest, um, never eat shredded wheat, northeast <laughs> of the I was country. Say, wait. <laughs> <laughs> I just am bad with geography. Uh blah, 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 blah. Where, wherever he had friends or relatives. Um, during the time, ABC, the TV network, received a phone call from a man claiming to be Davis, saying that he was really afraid that police were going to beat him and that they would not even attempt to take him alive. So he's trying to get news attention. So if this was him, whether he was he was concerned that the police were just doing all of this to kill him right so while they are kind of like investigating leads and tips i one of the leads that they investigate is that davis had been staying at his mother's house and so they search the building while they interview his mother across the street and she suffered a heart attack (laughs) 
during the interrogation. Apparently. Oh my god, that's not funny. But it's just like, what are the chances, or was it so much stress that she was under? I don't know. Wow. Um, she w- recovered just fine. Well, then she was um, saved she, by the bell. Then Sa- saved yeah. by the uh, saved by the beat. Yeah. Um, but she did talk to her son and told him to contact the NAACP to help him negotiate a safe surrender because she also was kind of concerned that police would just shoot him on sight. During the manhunt, Davis was kind of cornered by police and he forced his way into a family's apartment and held the family hostage for several hours trying to um, kind of negotiate a a safe surrender. Uh, That's awful. And it... I know that the fear for that family, I can't even imagine, but it all ended up working out. He was able to leave the apartment. Nobody was harmed. So he was arrested and charged with weapon possession, murder of uh, a couple of drug dealers. Um, I should have written that number down, but somewhere in the, (laughs) it said multiple murder. I mean, it's got to be at least three or four, right? Because it was three or four incidents. Yeah kidnapping and also automobile theft despite three different trials in two years ultimately they were unable to convince a jury of his guilt for anything but the weapons charge wow which finally they did get a conviction um, over four years after this had all happened during the opening and closing arguments davis's attorneys said without and this article says without producing any evidence that the prosecution evidence was fabricated and that the murder charges were a frame frame up to excuse the police raid on the apartment. Um, And they said that Davis had been recruited into a drug ring by corrupt police officers. And the object of the raid was to kill him because I guess they were kind of concerned about him. You know, if that story is to be believed, they were concerned that he was going to, uh, bring it all to light or or ruin their, you know, dealings or whatever. Gotcha. The prosecution, on the other hand, contended that he was a drug dealer who specialized in the armed robbery of other crack dealers and gave testimony for more than 50 witnesses, um, including ballistic evidence and fingerprints on a cash box that placed him at the scene of the October 1986 murders. The jury, however, found that the witness testimonies were conflicting and found discrepancies in times given by the witnesses. So after deliberating for nine days, which was the longest in Bronx history for a single defendant, the jury acquitted him of all charges. So then, so he was acquitted of those murders. Then he was tried for shooting the six police officers during the apartment raid, and he was charged with nine counts of attempted murder, six of the six counts of aggravated assault, Two uh, usage, uh, two criminal use of a firearm, and eight criminal possession of a weapon. Eight. Yeah. Wow. Um, During the jury selection process, each side kind of charged the other as like employing racist tactics, like in jury selection or how they were portraying events or whatever. So ultimately, that ended up in a mistrial. And then there was a second mistrial of that same case. The, this is still trying him for the six police officer shootings. Wow. That's kind of <laughs> I, I shocking know. because I feel like that one is a little bit more open and shut. Yes. Yeah. It lo- it On its surface, it looks more, much more open and shut. Like, um, I mean, obviously there's a lot that goes into like why he did it and his motive. But at least in that one, like he he is not disputing that he did it. It's just about who I guess shot first. Yes. But I mean, interesting that two times, even when they had uh, a hand in jury selection mistrial. 
Yeah. Yikes. Well, and so the the second mistrial was in part because one of the jurors, like during the trial, said that he was worried about police harassment if he voted to acquit Davis. And wow. so it sounds like maybe there was some police intimidation potentially of the jurors to what's what's the opposite of acquit? To convict? Sure. Yeah, sure. Convict. So ultimately, um, they did find a jury and for another trial. And during the trial, the defense contended that Davis had acted out of self-defense, that the police had fired first, and he was afraid for his life and acting in self-defense. They did also, without much evidence, say that the Bronx police were corrupt and involved in a drug trade, and that the police had opened fire first, and all of this was part of this elaborate scheme. Davis's mother, during this trial, testified that a police officer had pushed her and threatened to kill her Uh, Sorry, pushed and threatened to kill her son, Davis, two weeks before the raid. And she warned her son um, about this while also complaining to the police department civilian complaint review board. And so there is a complaint on record from her two weeks before the raid that police had threatened to kill her son. Okay. So on November 20th, 1988, after deliberating uh, for five days, the jury acquitted him of the six attempted murder and aggravated assault charges, which that marks the first and at the time of many of these articles that I wrote, the first and only time that a civilian has ever been acquitted for the shooting of a police officer. I was I was going to say I am shocked that in, what was yeah. this, 1987, 1990? Yeah, like this around is 98 or 88 right now. Yeah. Like... That is unheard of, especially for a black man to be acquitted of shooting a white police officer. Much less six of them. Six of them, and multiple times, and of all the other stuff, too. Which, doesn't that kind of tell you that something weird is happening here? Uh, Like, it's just a very, a lot of, a lot of kind of moments where you're like, I don't know about this. Evidence and research and hard facts show that this is not the norm and that it is very, very easy to wrongly convict people of things under the same circumstances. So it would lead someone to believe that there was no case. Yeah. But, okay, so he was acquitted of the attempted murder and aggravated assault charges, but found guilty of six counts of criminal possession of a weapon. And so he was convicted for five to 15 years for those weapons charges. When interviewed by a reporter afterward, the jury for woman said that Davis was, quote, a young and innocent kid who got recruited by a few corrupt policemen. They came in to wipe him out. They wanted him dead so he couldn't squeal on them. They would have killed him. And she said that the jury believed the defense assertion that the police fired first and that Davis was defending himself. So that's why he was acquitted of of those charges. In 1989, Davis went to trial for the murder of Victor Lagombra. I think that sounds right. I'm sure that's wrong. Uh, one of the other drug dealers that he was alleged to have killed. The defense produced two witnesses who testified that Davis was in Florida making a rap album on the day of the murder, and so he was found not guilty. But just Im- like at this point, it's like, for fuck's sake, this man has been like in court for years of his life at this point. It must be so frustrating. Especially when your alibi is, I was in another state. Like, why is this even going to trial? Why is it even going to trial? So anyway, uh, his defense attorneys continued to, during this and after this, stand by his statements that Davis had been helping 
uh, corrupt police officers sell drugs, and that the constant accusations against him were a conspiracy. And while he was in jail for the, the weapon charges that he was convicted of, Davis was also tried for the murder of Raymond Vizcaino, V-I-Z-C-A-I-N-O, another drug dealer, um, one of the ones who was killed during a robbery attempt. And for that one, he was found guilty in March of 1991. And so he was in jail at the time and then received an additional sentence of 25 to life. When he was found guilty of that one, the courtroom apparently erupted in anger and a bunch of his supporters had to be escorted from the courtroom. And reportedly, Davis yelled at the Supreme Court justice that he uh, he said, I ain't afraid of you. So uh, after this, Davis maintained that the police and court system were engaged in a vendetta against him, that he had been kind of um, targeted by the police for being part of this corrupt drug deal uh, involving yeah, police and like drug deal it. system. And so his case was part of the Mullen Commission investigation. Have no. you heard that? Have you heard of that? Okay. So that was an investigation into police corruption. Uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, in New York. And that investigation found, quote, the NYPD had failed at every level to uproot corruption and had instead tolerated a culture that fostered misconduct and concealed lawlessness by police officers. Um, And it further went on to say, today's corruption is not the corruption of the NAP Commission days. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, But they say that corruption then was largely a corruption of accommodation, of criminals and police officers giving and taking bribes, buying and selling protection. Uh, Corruption was, in in its essence, consensual. Today's corruption is characterized by brutality, theft, abuse of authority, and active police criminality. So this investigation into the New York Police Department at the time found massive corruption and talked about many of the the characteristics inherent in this case of abuse of authority, of brutality, of, of theft, of threat. So all those claims are substantiated by a, a, a further investigation. Yes, not based solely right, on his right. case, but his case was, you know, part of it. So it's it's kind of like it didn't say specifically for this case, but there's a lot of evidence that lends credibility to that theory, yeah. I guess. So while Davis was in jail, he changed his name to um, Adam Abdul Hakim, but I couldn't really find any explanation for that. But in the state habeas application for, he wanted, he filed a, a application for transfer because he complained that uh, in prison he was being repeatedly uh, targeted and brutally beaten and threatened with death by guards and officers in the prison. Oh, God. To the point where he was left partially paralyzed and walked with a cane as a result of these assaults. In 2003, an independent documentary about him called The Larry Davis Story was made, and I could not find a copy of it like easily, otherwise I totally would have watched it. Um, but the documentary alleges that uh, New York police were involved in narcotics trading in the 80s, which the, the Mullen report uh, corroborated, and claims that the shootout came after Davis had backed out of a drug deal with the police. His case also appears in a couple of books about the Black community's treatment by police and the criminal justice system. On February 20th, 2008, a correctional officer overseeing the recreational yard saw uh, Davis and another inmate fighting. And during the fight, Davis was stabbed in the head and body with a nine-inch metal shank and was transported to a hospital where he was pronounced dead. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he was killed in prison. And 
Um, Mayor Koch, K-O-C-H, Mayor of New York. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was quoted as saying, the prison system did what the justice system could not, which is so fucking gross. And so I instead want to end with a quote from a member of his defense team who said that Davis was a complex man who did many violent and bad things. He was a drug dealer. He acknowledged that. He was involved in drug dealing with the police. When he became a symbol of resistance in New York in the 1980s, he became a black folk hero, an urban legend because he fought back at a time when African Americans were being killed by white police officers. And so to this day, Larry Davis has um, a very kind of mixed reputation among folks as some people are just like, oh, he was a drug dealer who killed people and blah, blah, blah. And then there are other people who are saying like, no, there was massive police corruption. He got roped into all of this. And yes, he did these things, but, you know, he was constrained by these choices. And he also had attempts on his life and all of these trials were part of this corrupt scheme to get him to not talk and put him away and all that kind of stuff. So he has a a very complicated history, but that is the story of Larry Davis and the kind of allegations of police corruption in New York Police Department at the late 80s. Wow. Intense, right? Yeah, really intense. I wonder if like, I wonder if he was chosen because of like his proclivity to like other crimes Mm -hmm. or if like he just got wrapped up in it well it's like that that. story i feel like you and i have talked about this about that like young woman who got arrested for a minor drug charge and then they like roped her into this scheme and she got killed by the other drug dealer do you remember that story yeah i do i can't i apologize that i can't remember her name but it's just one of those things like you know if you're if your kind of life is a constant like tense relationship with police, regardless of what that looks like. And then they are able to kind of take advantage of any previous misdeeds to rope you into these other things, whether it's a sting or in this case, potentially like police corruption and more involvement in drug dealings. Like it's, it's hard to push against that kind of power, especially when they're holding the power of literally like life and death over you. So it's, you know, I, I don't want to defend the, a lot of the choices he made, but it's, I think, understandable that a person would make a lot of, like, gray choices when you have that kind of threat potentially hanging above you. You know? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and and also you're being used by police to be a informant and, uh, not even an informant, a, uh, you know, like a criminal, basically. In a world of crime like that's the world they're sort of keeping you in even if you wanted to get out of it like you are being by proxy forced to stay in a world that even if you didn't want to be a part of it anymore your alternative is jail or death right so how do you get out yeah that's awful interesting how different it is from the episode too yeah yeah i think the episode was much more explicit in like there was police corruption and the story you know understandably like the story is very contentious because you sort of have, you know, like people want to believe the the powers of authority, right? You want like want to believe that the police system is just and operating in a just way. And when there are people who are like, no, this is, a, there's a lot of corruption. I was like kind of manipulated or forced into this. You don't want to believe that. No, you don't want to mistrust the people that you 
are trusting to keep you safe because it challenges far more than just that one question. Exactly. It, like it means so much more. Like if I believe that the people who are in place to keep me safe are not actually good people or are do not have the interest of everyone's safety at heart or have these sort of like nefarious motives, then what does that mean about my safety? Right. What does that mean about what I'm willing to accept as a human being? Mm-hmm. What does that mean about how I look at these other communities of people who are not being treated well? Like, does that mean I'm a bad person? I can't see. It's like it. It's like anything, right? When you're afraid to to um, confront something because it's going to have a ripple effect in a much larger way in your life, and you're not you're not willing to accept that you might have made a mistake yeah. or you might have to change your mind on something. Yeah, totally. That might make you have to change your mind on other things too. Yep. Well, what did you think about the episode? Oh yeah. Okay. I'm curious because so, it's an interesting way to rate it. <laughs> I know. Okay. Okay. Watchability. Um, I'm going to give this one, like I think it was a more kind of gripping storyline than some of the others. I'm going to give it a C for kind of like watchability. Okay. What about you? I would give it a a C plus. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of the more engaging storylines they've had so far. Yeah. If it wasn't so confusing in the middle, <laughs> yeah. I would have given it a higher <laughs> score, to be honest. There were just things that didn't need to be in it. Like, we yeah, didn't need it him. a little tightening. He didn't need to have an affair with this blonde woman. That she no. was completely irrelevant. There didn't, didn't need to be Ravina in the school with the gun. <laughs> there didn't need to be Red doing um, breakdancing on the street. Like all of no. these sort of meaningless characters that that ultimately contributed zero to the storyline other than like weird red herrings that yes. only lasted for the scene they were in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like they were yes. born and died in the same scene. <laughs> You know, I think an, an hour-long television show is an insufficient amount of time to deal with, like, putting red herrings in there. And they do that often. Right. And, like, the fur coat in that oh, one episode God. where it's like, why the fuck are we still talking about a fur coat? Yeah, if the fur coat didn't work, we didn't need Ravina. <laughs> no, we certainly did not. <laughs> so that's where I'd give it this. It was very, If that didn't happen, I would have definitely gone into B territory. And what about how it dealt with things? Oh, that's hard. You You go first. Okay, I'm gonna say that this one, (laughs) I don't know, D minus, like, not great. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna say D, D minus. What about you? I'm gonna say, because I think it deals with multiple things, some better than others. Yeah. Um, I would say it dealt with, like, police misconduct and all of that in an okay way. Yeah, like it didn't excuse away a lot of it. Yeah. Um, I think it didn't do great for the depiction of women or black people. No. Um, it also didn't do great for police officers because we saw like Robinette getting stonewalled the minute he was trying to get any information about the case. Yeah, it it didn't. It didn't. And it also yeah. didn't. It didn't really go anywhere. So no, I will give yeah. it a. I'll give it a mm, D plus. <laughs> have we gotten above a d yet for any of them uh for the for the second question i don't know yeah i don't think so oh, yeah. well thanks for listening yeah thanks for listening 
<laughs> hey, if you have a minute, go ahead and review us and rate us on whatever you're listening to us on and uh, tell your friends to do it as well. Yeah, check us out on uh, all our social media sites as well. We're on Twitter and Instagram as Ripped Headlines, and you can email us at RippedHeadlinesPod at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page really easily found if you just search Ripped, Headline, Ripped from the Headlines. And I think that's that's all of us, right? That's all of us? That's all, all in folks. one place? <laughs> <laughs> Great. We will see you next week. All right. See you then. Bye. Bye.